speaker tonight is Chris. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is February 5th, 1987. And thank you for everybody that uh, has called me and texted and emailed and, and got me to this meeting, and especially out to my buddy Barry, who uh, gave my name to the secretary. Anyway, I've got 25 minutes to share a little bit of uh, what I used to be like, what happened, what I'm like now, and cover 11 years of drinking and 33 years of sobriety, so I'll talk quickly. Um, and right into it, you know, I was somebody that before I ever picked up my first drink, I always felt a little different than other people. I just always had a certain amount of discomfort in my own skin. And, um, you know, the big book refers to it as being restless, irritable, and discontent. That's like a colossal understatement for me. I seem to be like a walking the edge of insanity all the time. You know, I was had a great sense of alienation. Uh, it felt like there was everybody in the world, and then there was me. And no matter what I did, I could never cross over that invisible line and be one of or a part of. And uh, I even felt like a black sheep in my family. I felt like an alien in my own family. My, my father played uh, professional football and professional baseball. My brother played uh, 10 years in the major leagues. And I went to jail 16 times for alcohol-related offenses. So I uh, was always on the outside. And um, anyway, alcohol solved that. A certain amount of drinks, I would ingest a few drinks of alcohol, and my shoulders would come down. My head would, the chatter would stop. And I felt okay. And it was the only time I got any relief. So in many ways, alcohol was my solution. My magic number was eight to 10 drinks. Eight to 10 drinks made me feel like what I thought all those people out there felt like normally. And the reality is, is if I was somebody that could drink eight to 10 drinks and then nurse number 10 and nurse number 11 and just maintain what those drinks did for me, I never would have come to AA. Problem is, is as an alcoholic, I have that phenomenon of craving, as we call it, and I would overshoot the mark. I'd get right into this sweet spot, and then I'd drink to oblivion or to blackout to our unconsciousness. So anyway, um, I started drinking at a young age. I went to a uh, college, uh, all-boys college prep school where we drank in a fashion that was similar to the way that uh, fraternities drank. And I was off and running. And my early days were checkered with consequences, but the benefits of drinking far outweighed those consequences. I think I got my first DUI when I was 16. That was in like 1983 or four, when it was difficult to get a DUI. And um, anyway, fast forwarding, since uh, I'm, I'm a little bit limited on time, um, I, you know, it was my drinking was checkered with problems. I was kicked out of that prep school. I was a, a runaway. I wrecked cars at an early age, problems with the law behind alcohol, and uh, already started a journey of trying to control my drinking. Or one of the things that I was obsessed with was not only controlling and enjoying it, but dialing back the clock, back to those days when I could drink, you know, six, seven drinks and just capture the magic, that buzz, and, that, and not overdo it. And, uh, and I failed repeatedly. And then I started the process of trying to quit and failed repeatedly at that. 
Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and, uh, and in a suburban neighborhood. And when I, gra- when I graduated, when I got kicked out of high school, I, uh, I went to work in the woods as a logger, and I spent a couple years doing that, drinking amongst uh, some professionals there. And even there, as a, an 18, 19-year-old, I stood out as a drinker amongst drinkers. And um, fast-forwarding a little further, in fall of 1985, I was at a place in my life where I was pretty beaten up by alcohol, and I had a conversation with myself. And in that conversation, I I surrendered to alcohol. I made the decision that I no longer was going to try to control my drinking. I was going to drink as much as I wanted to drink, when I wanted to drink. I just accepted the fact that I was a drinker, and I was no longer going to try to look like all those people out there living normal lives. That's who I was. And what happened was, is for the next three weeks, I drank to blackout on a daily basis. And at the end of the three weeks, I thought, oh my God, am I ever going to be able to, you know, back this up or turn this off? And my next thought was, I don't care because this is the freest I've ever been in my entire life. When I no longer was trying to fit into society and was no longer trying to fight alcohol and I was just accepting what I was, there was a certain freedom in that. And uh, that freedom was short-lived, however, and the consequences started stacking up. And uh, my life became Groundhog Day. Daily, by this time, I was a daily drinker all of my drinking career. And in the end, I was a daily oblivion drinker. I was living essentially to drink. My last two years, I drank to unconsciousness or blackout almost every day. And um, it was Groundhog Day. Every day I'd come to, I'd patch the blackout from the night before together. I would go through the shakes, I'd go through the sweats, I'd uh, you know, be filled with guilt, remorse, and shame, and I'd swear off, that's it, I'm done, you know, and I would be firmly committed to you know, changing my life. And somewhere later in the day, that strange insanity that precedes the first drink would come in my head and say, maybe if I only drink this way, or if I only drink you know, this, or if I eat something between meals, or I do it this way. And the insanity that, of that is, is I bought it every single time, and I would start drinking again. And the funny thing about the insanity that precedes the first drink, for me anyway, is it only seems insane with a sober mind, with a mind that is treated by the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the middle of my alcoholism, it doesn't seem like an insane thought. It seems like a good idea, or why haven't I ever thought of that strategy before? So anyway, June of 1986, I went through my first uh, inpatient treatment center, spent uh, 30-some-odd days in there. I was kind of uh, captured by uh, on a ruse. By that time, I was suffering from DTs when I'd come off of alcohol. I only wanted to get detoxed. I didn't want to go through the treatment, but through a series of circumstances, I ended up staying in there. I was uh, introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous and two other 12-step programs in that facility, given a lot of information, and was back out drinking within a week or so after, after there. We did a geographic um, in August of that year. I mentioned I had experience as a logger, came across... Now, this time, I'm desperately trying to not drink on a daily basis, and I'm reading all sorts of self-help. I've done all the things we do. You know, I've tried switching to other things, medication, drugs, 
you know, and drugs were, uh, drugs were okay. I mean, I experimented with drugs, but drugs got me high. Alcohol got me there. And there's a fundamental difference between the two. Drugs were fun and recreational. Alcohol, my life depended upon it. And so nothing worked. And in uh, August of uh, 86, I did a geographic up to a dry island in Alaska. I thought that would be the uh, answer. It was an hour and a half float plane ride out of Ketchikan and um, drank all the way up there, went out to this dry island, worked for three weeks, no problems, until uh, two guys smuggled in a bottle of whiskey that were in my bunkhouse. And one night after work, they asked if I wanted to drink. I, my alcoholic mind very rapidly said, you know, it's been three weeks since I've had a drink. I didn't go through the DTs this time. I haven't even really thought much about alcohol. I'm probably not really an alcoholic after all. Sure, I'll take a drink. I grabbed that bottle and I took like two or three big gulps of it down. And they grabbed it from me and they said, hey, we got to make this last. I thought we were going to split the bottle, but apparently they brought a bottle to like take a, a hit off of every night after work. And what happened to me, an hour and a half float plane ride out of Ketchikan with only one float plane in, in there and then to, into that island every 24 hours, is I had the equivalent of about two straight shots of whiskey in me with absolutely no way of getting another drink. And so that craving was on me. It was like an itch that I couldn't scratch. Anyway, needless to say, as soon as the next float plane came in, I was on it into Ketchikan, and by that night was in uh, the Ketchikan jail. Came back down to uh, Oregon. I owed eight days of jail time for my third DUI in January of 1987. Was doing it on weekends. And I was going into the jail cell with a big book. I was in, in other uh, um, non-conference approved literature about alcoholism, reading it, trying to solve my drinking problem. And, be, and I was doing it on weekends. And between the third and the fourth weekend, I got arrested midweek. And, um, and the police, when they arrested me, they said, they said, you know, you should go see this guy, Joe. He's an expert on alcoholism. And I knew who this guy was. This was in a small town on the border of Oregon and California. And uh, let my timer know I got her message. Um, and I should go see this guy, Joe. And in trying to get out of this arrest, I said, yeah, I'll go see him. The following day or in the next couple days, I was walking down the street. And there was one of these guys that stand on the sidewalk reading the Bible to passerbyers. Came walking past this guy. He read something out of the Bible. I have no idea what it was. But when he read it, it seemed to correlate to the police telling me to go see this guy, Joe. And I thought, God, if I was one of these AA people that believed in this higher power and that, uh, you know, there were, you know, this higher powers, you, you know, the hand of God was at work in my life, I would say that that was a sign that I should go see this guy, Joe. I took a few more steps. I had a moment of clarity. And what happened was I thought, even though I don't believe in this, what would happen if I didn't dismiss these types of things as being stupid and trivial and just went and saw this guy, Joe, anyway? And that's what I did. I turned, I went and saw this guy, Joe. Joe did what we do. He told me his story. And at the end, he asked me if I wanted to go to AA. Now, I didn't want to go to an AA meeting. And I'd been there. And I never identified in an AA meeting before because I had never been into an AA meeting where there was a primary purpose or a singleness of purpose. I didn't shoot heroin. And that's what I heard in AA meetings. 
And I didn't, you know, and I didn't also identify with the circles and people talking about their weeks. But this meeting that he took me to, uh, which I didn't want to go, but I went out of a sense of obligation. They did have the traditions alive in the group. And what happened is the speaker that night, she told her story in the same manner that I'm doing tonight, focus on her, the progression of her alcoholism and what happened to her. And then there was participation afterwards and each participant did the same thing. And the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous happened to me that night. And what it was is somewhere in the middle of that meeting, my head started going like this and I identified. And it was the first time I'd ever identified with another human being. I felt so alone. You know, when I look back at my drinking, you know, there's no question that the drinking almost got me, but it seems as though the loneliness almost killed me as well. And it's a loneliness that's hard to articulate because it was, an, it was a lonely emptiness that existed even when I was amongst people, amongst family or amongst friends, just that constant isolation. And that meeting, you know, they had that singleness of purpose. The one thing we all had in common, alcoholism, and I got it. You know, the funny thing about singleness of purpose is, in, and I'm an advocate for it because it saved my life, but it's not about keeping anybody out of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's about keeping the alcoholic in Alcoholics Anonymous because my life depends on that same identification today at 33 years, just as it did when my first year survived. Anyway, I drank for another week after that. And my last night of drinking was February 4th, 1987. I went out one more time to prove that I would be the exception to the rule. I had a plan. My plan was I was going to drink 10 beers and then call it a night, shut it down early. And long story short is I bought a 12 pack of beer to drink on the way down to the bars. The guy that was supposed to take me down to the bars was running late. I drank nine of them sitting in the living room waiting for him to take me to the bars. I remember being at this one club called Jasmine's drinking vodka Collins with one hand over one eye because I would see him double. And then I ended up over at this bar that I drank at on a, norm, a, a regular basis and um, drank there. And it's the type of bar that they don't cut people off and they don't 86 people. But for whatever reason, um, I apparently verbally assaulted uh, somebody in the, in the uh, bar and the bartender cut me off. So I attacked him. Police were called and one more time I was arrested. And I don't know what was different about that night, but there was something significantly different because I'd been in such worse trouble than that, that evening, but something inside of me broke and I recognized it. And I was in and out of a blackout as the police were processing me. And um, I just remember, I just, I was always a fighter with the police, you know, and um, this night I just wept. You know, they put me in the car, I wept. And I recognized something was different. And uh, they processed me and they took me home at the end of the evening, dropped me off at my house. I went in and I laid down to bed. My last conscious thought that night was something's different about tonight. I don't know what, but uh, I wonder if it'll be here in the morning. And it was. And what it was is I was absolutely defeated by alcohol and alcoholism. And, and in a complete moment of despair and surrender that morning, I reached out to a God that I didn't believe in or didn't want to believe in. And I said, please, God, make this stop or kill me. And then I said the Lord's Prayer after that. And the thing about that surrender uh, is that I didn't know at the time. I only knew this in hindsight. But the obsession to drink alcohol was relieved that morning. February 4th of 1987, I lived with an obsession to drink alcohol on a daily basis. And on February 5th of 87, I was freed of that. And I was freed of that, I believe, for a couple of reasons. One, because of that initial surrender. And two, 
because of all of the actions I took after that that seemingly had no relationship to the fact that I drank the way I drank or I felt the way I felt. And so I was, willingness was born. And I did what, because of that one AA meeting, all the other AA meetings never, never registered, but that one AA meeting, they got me. I knew that there was a place where people like me that drank like me, felt like me, and thought like me were staying sober. And so I went and I did what we do. And I went to a meeting every day. I got commitments. I got right into the big book right away, got a sponsor. And I just started doing everything that they did. And one day at a time, I started, you know, I was staying sober. And um, I had difficulties with God initially. And, uh, you know, but what I was told was, you know, people said, fake it till you make it. One guy put it in a way that I really liked. He said, you don't have to believe in God to make a start in this program. You just have to take actions as if you believe in God. And that I could do. And he pointed to the chapter of We Agnostic where it talks about just a willingness was enough. And I started taking actions as if I believed in God. And what happened is for the first time in my entire life, my life started unfolding into goodness. And uh, somewhere in the, the first few months, I came across that line in We Agnostics where it says the God, our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. And I was like, yeah, my ideas have never worked, but this God idea stuff is working, even though I'm not even sure I believe in it. But as, as my sobriety continued and a series of coincidences continued to happen and my life continued to get good, it became evident that there was a power greater than myself and at work in my life, and I came to believe. I hesitated or procrastinated in between steps three and four. And uh, what happened is on one hand, my life was continuing to get better because of the removal of alcohol. And at some point, my internal life started declining. And it kept declining and declining and declining to a point where I became unbearably miserable in sobriety. And purely out of desperation, uh, I wrote my fourth step. And I wrote that four step and I'll tell you this, I've written a lot of inventories in my sobriety and I've done some really structurally good ones with the columns and the right verbiage and everything like that. This inventory that I wrote, that first four step was not one of those. There were columns, but it was a mess. It was a mess. But I can tell you this, and that is it's the single best thing I've ever written in my life because it was thorough, it was fearless, and I got everything down. I got with my sponsor, I read the fifth step, did exactly what we do, and something happened between steps five and six and seven for me, and it's, it's changed me forever. And what it was is, and I didn't recognize it initially, but something inside of me shifted, and I've never been the same person. Um, I, you know, I was plagued with great depressions and anxiety attacks in early sobriety, and um, you know, hyper self-conscious. And I mean, I literally thought I was going to be institutionalized uh, in my first year of sobriety. And I spent a great deal of my early months in the fetal position at night, just reciting the Lord's Prayer over and over again, hoping not to go insane. And the, the defects and the fears that had dictated my actions in life, a lot of those dissipated uh, between steps five and six. And I started to get comfortable in my own skin. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And my experience has been is that has continued as I you know, continued on through the steps and continued on in Alcoholics Anonymous, taking actions like a, that, that seemingly have no 
relationship to my problem or my drinking, which is still what I do today. You know, my problems today or my decisions today or uh, anything, they don't, they don't respond to a frontal assault the way that maybe normal people do it. Mine, mine respond to a, a spiritual solution. So my actions are still the same today. If I have an issue here or a problem or a decision here, the decision is not to, to immerse myself into that problem to find the solution. It's helping another alcoholic. It's relying on God. It's being of service. It's doing all these unrelated actions. Anyway, my life got really good as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and I continued on through the steps. And what I'll tell you is this. And um, let's look at my time here. Um, when I was about two and a half, two or two and a half years sober, I was doing some prayer and meditation and I had this like little uh, kind of fantasy I guess um, or maybe you could call it an intuitive thought or you could call it inspiration but what it was is I had this recognition that all my life it was like it was a baseball metaphor but all my life my fears had prevented me from stepping into the batter's box because I was afraid of striking out or getting hit by a pitch and and of course, the goal would be to hit a triple or a home run. And in this meditation, I recognized that a home run or how well I do at the, at the, uh, in the batter's box, that's how they judge success and failure in the real world. But the real world gets me drunk. I have to live in the realm of the spirit. And the realm of the spirit, it's not based on how well I do at the plate. It's based on me suiting up and showing up, going into that batter's box, getting out of the results business, turning it over to God and swinging the bat. And I recognized that that was, you know, that was a metaphor for my life. And what I did is I started facing fears. You know, uh, a lot of my friends, they talk about, you know, in AA, we run towards our problems, not away from them. And I started doing that in a significant way, immersed in the principles of step six and seven. And through that, you know, I got a career that, uh, that I'm still in today. And, um, you know, I, I married the love of my life when I was five and a half years sober. And, you know, I have just, uh, you know, I have continued to live a great life, but it's no different at 33 years or at any time in my sobriety, it has been no different than it was in my first year. And that is it's first things first. There's no graduate level Alcoholics Anonymous for me. I am still immersed in the basic actions that I took in that first year, you know, on the firing line, helping other alcoholics, trusting God. And I'll say this, I've given you two, two examples tonight of where I've based an action on an intuitive thought. One was when that guy read that Bible and I went and saw that guy, Joe, and he took me to a meeting to save my life. The other was the baseball thing, which, you know, um, uh, unrolled into all sorts of different things. The book talks about looking for inspiration and guidance and intuitive thoughts. And, you know, my, I need to make a concerted effort to not only ask for that, but to look for that. And unfortunately in my sobriety, intuitive thoughts or anything like that have never come with a neon sign saying, this is a message from God. You better take action. 
they come as a very subtle voice, thought, sense, and then I question it. Is that an intuitive thought? And I start to rationalize a way that that's not what it is. And what I've had to do is dismiss that rational, the rational mind and act as if it's an intuitive thought anyway. And I've lived my life that way my entire sobriety. And what I can tell you is that when I have acted on an intuitive thought or what I perceive to be inspiration from my higher power, when I've acted on it, I'm batting a thousand percent today. You know, I am so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. There's been only two things that have ever worked in my life for me. Those eight to 10 drinks worked temporarily, but they were, you know, checkered with all sorts of consequences and problems and a miserable existence. And the other thing that's worked in my life is a certain amount of Alcoholics Anonymous, actions in Alcoholics Anonymous outlined in those first 164 pages of the big book. I am so grateful. My name is Chris. I'm an alcoholic, and thanks for inviting me to your meeting.